0: I'm Nevin, and I'm cooking up a podcast. Each week, I'm going to share some new recipes, talk to people about food and cooking, make some videos, and go on some adventures. You can find it all at TaylorCooks.com. This week, I go meet the living legend, the queen of the organic greens and herbs, Eva Samaripa. right so this week i traveled down to south dartmouth massachusetts and visited eva's garden and eva somaripa she has been operating Eva's Garden, which is an organic farm. They grow mostly herbs and a couple of vegetable things, but it's on just about two acres. Uh, she has like seven greenhouses and has one of the oldest or one of the first organic certifications in the state of Massachusetts. So that's pretty cool. She's been doing it forever. She built it up from just her growing herbs and trucking them up to Cambridge and selling to some people uh, in the neighborhood to this like, bustling, vibrant, community-based place. And it's just, you know, her energy is just unreal. She is the subject uh, of a book that was written, a cookbook. It's called Wild Flavors. It was written by Eva's friend, Dee Emmons, who spent a year down on the farm with her, profiling some of the interesting and little-known herbs that Eva grows on her farm. And giving recipes for them, how to use them stories behind them, um, stories about the community around. It's really an awesome book. And it's really, every time I pick it up and look at it, like it's just, it just keeps getting better. And it's always new somehow. Like I always look at it and I'm always, or you should check it out. It's called wild flavors. Um, Eva herself is just a really special person. She's she's vibrant and always on the go. She's always finding things to get into around the farm and projects to work on. She gave me this um, really cool tour of the farm, even though there's nothing really happening right now. It's before the season has really started. We toured around and she showed me everything she's got going on, a wood oven and uh, all that. We dug up some sun chokes together and she dug up an angelica plant and gave it to me, which is this like really pungent herb. Um, so yeah, that was really cool to be given an angelica plant from her farm. Hopefully I'll have it forever, you know, pretty cool stuff. Um, she is a huge proponent of sustainable living and no waste and treading lightly. She has this very, very enthusiastic love of life and cooking and connecting with people around food and cooking. It's really something special to be around. And she has this passion, this like really, really energetic passion for discovering and new ideas and and new things around food and cooking and growing food and creating and learning. And yeah, she cooked me lunch two days that we were down there, um, which was really special too, really cool. Um she made me a salad, which was her mixed greens with some boiled potatoes and just uh vinegar and olive oil on it and it was, you know, really good. Yeah, so so far going down there and being able to spend a couple of days with her has been one of the greatest things that's happened on this journey so far. So super grateful. Thank you, Eva, for sharing your time and energy and and your love for life and cooking with me and allowing me to share it with other people. So this is me and Eva in conversation about everything.
1: Hello, I'm Eva Reaper. <laughs> Think summer reaper. And um, I am a farmer in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, where I have been growing things for over 40 years, and um, my friends let me build my pottery kiln on their land at the end of Jordan Road, and I totally fell in love with this area and the meeting of water and land uh, and the ocean and that coastal environment, which, uh, for unexplainable reasons— I, from the Midwest was just uh, totally um, struck by its its beauty and uh, was drawn to it like a magnet. Well, somehow, this little pocket of uh, of land uh, where we are in in South Dartmouth, um, ended up being off the beaten track, and it wasn't developed. Like the Cape was, it's also a different kind of soil. As the Cape is very sandy, uh, this is more clay, and um, just because of its geological history, and it's really, really good growing land. And um, and also because it's just south of the Cape, it's actually it gets the Gulf Stream, which then is goes out to sea as it moves north and bumps into the Cape. So. The climate is uh, cooler in summer and warmer in winter, just enough to, um, because of that uh, modifying influence of the Gulf stream, stream, just enough to make it a little friendlier to growing things.
0: I didn't realize you've been here for, you've been farming on this land for 40 years. Yeah,
1: well, I first came here as a, um, while I was a student at RISD and just with a friend who was also a student and whose family had land here, and uh, the first time I walked down their causeway to view Allen's Pond, now well protected by the Allen's Pond Audubon organization, is, uh, I I just, I just said, I I didn't say, but I just felt totally smitten by it. It was like falling in love. I just fell in love with this landscape, and I just was able to, uh, you know, they let me do my senior project, which was building a pottery kiln on their land. And um, and during that time, um, I got married and my husband and I were luckily informed that there was a little piece of land for sale for very little. We snapped it up and I've just been here ever since.
0: And then when did you start farming for sale as a a market market, garden. Well,
1: I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and coming out here weekends and in the summer. And uh, at that time, I'd become very interested in food and was uh, taking classes at the Cambridge Center for Adult Education and uh, reading Julia Child, the newly minted Julia Child first book and just exploring food it was it was in the uh, late 60s and early 70s when the the food revolution was just beginning we had a lot of relatives in um, Switzerland and we had gone to Switzerland to visit and we went across the lake to the French side to Chamonix one day and uh, there in the it was early, early spring, and there was a little uh, mom-and-pop kind of store with a bay window, and on the floor of that bay window were fresh strawberries and fresh tarragon, which were had obviously been just picked, and they were just so fresh and dewy, and, and I just thought, gee, I could do that. And when I got back home, I started um, growing French tarragon, and other herbs uh, helped along in my little piece of land out here I, I actually started a little earlier When I, when my, my friend's family Let me build a little cabin While I was doing my uh, pottery kiln Matriarch of that family Famous Dodie Powell Who many people still remember out here um, Knew a lot about foraging And a lot about gardening And uh, helped me get started with my first little garden, which was kind of a subsistence thing. And I had that little garden and the shellfish from the marsh. Also with the help of a French-Canadian woman named Noelle Houle, who raised goats in Dartmouth. And, and she grew a lot of herbs for what she considered to be good food and medicine for her goats. And she gave me divisions and cuttings and got me started on, on growing herbs in particular. So between the the, the French tarragon and, and the uh, other wild-type herbs that she had, uh, I established quite a nice little herb garden. And the flavors and the aromas and the textures and the colors I found totally wonderful. So I just kept growing more. And, um, and since I was going Commuting back to Cambridge most weeks, except in the summer, I um, I thought, well, might as well bring a few things back with me and see if I can sell them. And in those days, you couldn't get fresh herbs very easily. This is in the early '70s. the The bread and circus store in my neighborhood, which was the was followed later, became a Whole Foods store that. And then a couple of restaurants. Uh, The Charles Hotel was just opening up and Henrietta's Table, which is still my much appreciated customer, started buying. And I would just bring my herbs to places. And they were generally, the chefs were so happy to see really fresh herbs and that uh, I built up a little group of customers. And I would just um, bring things with me when when I came into town. It was kind of patchwork. And it, it, it was uh, 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 it it just speeded up and got and increased it just right. grew and and uh, so one person would tell me about another person or another person would hear about me and and slowly but surely uh, the garden got bigger. At that time, it was still primarily herbs, although I grew other things just for the family. And by the time I had little kids, uh, I didn't want them to feel. That there were that they couldn't just pick things and eat them in the garden, so I was I got interested in the organic uh, movement, which at that time was just starting, and I think I was one of the very first people in Massachusetts to get organic certification. The farm then got too big for me to handle all myself, so I started hiring someone to help out and and it just incrementally uh, increased, and I had to learn. A lot of things about running a business the hard way, uh, but now it's uh, it's um, fairly efficient, and we've kind of reached the limit of of the growing area that we have, which is only about two acres. Uh, very very small for a, a farm, but um, because we have fairly high priced things like herbs that you can do also a lot of on a small space, um, it 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 has worked out, and. Uh, my One of my other passions is no waste. So uh, knowing how much work goes into growing anything, I um, do not want anything to be wasted that could be eaten. And we always have in the peak seasons in the summer much more than we can possibly sell. And it's, it's maybe a little too big or a little too, you know, might have a few little spots on it or a little damaged on the edges. For any number of reasons, it's there. And I worked out arrangements with neighbors to come on the day after we sent our delivery to Boston to pick all the stuff that we would have to turn under in in the field in order to plant the next crop. Because we have just such a small piece of land under cultivation, it has to be used very efficiently. So one crop follows another pretty fast and we can't just let things sit, but nor do I like to, to just uh, turn them over so uh, when they are perfectly good for people to eat. And I know they they're part of the purpose of the daily table is to uh, well has, they have two missions: one to uh, stop the food waste and two to provide food for people. Who um, might not be able to afford it at normal prices? Uh, so this little store, the Daily Table, makes all that possible. And they even make they even sell something called veggie stock. They have uh, quart containers of veggie stock, which is when it's uh, still has nutrition in it, and but just isn't even of use right then and there for say a soup or a stew. It's it's still all that. All those vitamins can be and minerals can be uh, saved if it's made into a good stock, and then other people can add it to other things in their own kitchens. So Daily Table is just doing a great job satisfying both of its missions. Uh, we've now got a whole group of neighbors who love to come and pick stuff for those donations and other people who've transported them to, to Boston uh, to the Daily Table. And... Uh, uh, it's worked out well for all of us.
0: Yeah, so you're donating stuff that's not 100% sellable for whatever reason, and they're turning it into good food to then give or sell very cheaply to a community in need.
1: That's right. Yeah. And anybody can shop there. It's it's great. And anybody can volunteer there. I, I'm putting out a little pitch for right. uh, to get connected with The Daily Table. They have all kinds of uh, great volunteer things. And uh, for those of you who run restaurants or um, stores of any kind uh, you know they're always happy to get donations and they will even pick up within a certain mileage
0: yeah which was a, you were talking the other day too about making your sorrel aid and using all of the plant and that sort of stuff right. um,
1: and uh, I, have, I should also put a pitch for a book called um, Scraps Wilts and Weeds by my friend Tama Matsuka who is a forager in the New York City area who um, has written this Scraps, Wilts, and Weeds, along with uh, Mads Refsland, who is, I believe, one of the founders of Noma Restaurant, have uh, written this book just last year, 2017, Turning Wasted Food into Plenty, which is dear to my heart. Oh, another place that we do uh, contribute stuff to uh, in the same manner is uh, Haley House Bakery Cafe, and Haley House um, also has a food pantry and soup kitchen in Boston, and uh, both of those places do great things with um, extra food if you can only work out the, the system to get it to them. But they're always uh, very happy to, to make good use of it. I wanted
0: to talk a little bit about, uh, we talk, you talked about growing herbs and all that sort of stuff, but what has gr- drawn you to maybe growing some more unique types or varieties of herbs? Like, well, I
1: think some of it is just the thrill of discovery. Uh, and discovery in an area which is food and eating and growing, which just fascinates me for, who knows, some genetic reasons. Yeah, like some people love discovering new music. Some people love discovering new poetry. Uh, um, This just happens to be an area, and you can eat it. That's the best part after you discover something. And and then I also find it kind of interesting that so many things that I now love in the food world... I, I just thought were horrible when I first tasted them. My friend Didi says anybody can learn to like anything. And now after 40-some years in the business, I believe it is true. Well, maybe not anybody, but most people, myself included, uh, can develop an absolutely passionate taste for something that you could just hardly sniff before. And that has happened to me with arugula, for one thing. Um, You didn't
0: like arugula in the beginning? Too intense, too spicy?
1: My neighbors, who spent a lot of time in Greece and Italy, said, you have to grow arugula. This was in the early 70s. They brought me some seeds, and I grew it, and I just thought it smelled like and tasted like eating skunk, and I just, I just couldn't understand what all this enthusiasm was for. But I tried a little bit. I tried a little bit more, and now it would be life without arugula would be terrible. Uh, and another thing was the chicories because um, of their intense
0: bitterness. Uh, their intense you didn't? bitterness. Yeah. At
1: first, I, I I was visiting a friend in. Uh, in France, who had a little garden in the backyard, she was, well, first she was actually a, a graduate student in Cambridge, and she came out to my place where I had tried growing uh, radicchio. It's a, a, a green radicchio called uh, sugarloaf, which has a large, <clears throat> tougher outside leaves and then has this fabulous big, tight head of uh, more tender blanched leaves on the inside. And I didn't know that you could just eat the inner part and not the outer part and I just tasted the outer leaves and I thought they were just totally unpalatable and she, I was hauling it off in a wheelbarrow to the compost pile and she said no, no, no that's not the good part <laughs> and she showed me how to do it and and then when I visited them later at their place in France uh, she was growing lots of it and I learned how to cook it and I learned how delicious it actually could be both raw and cooked and now it is one of my favorite Favorite things to grow. And right. I have had to go through this same process of acclimatization with a lot of my customers who would keep trying to make it sweet mm. and, and um, educating. Yeah. You, you and, became educated. So I became and, the educator educated. taking people down the path that I had been between uh, barely wanting to touch something to absolutely adoring it. And I've seen in the many years that I've been in this uh, one thing and another. Coming from barely appreciated, if at all, to being um, enamored much by it, enamored yeah. by it, so I, I have this this urge to try all of those things. Breath. As long as they're liked somewhere by somebody, it's worth a try. Uh, so there's this seeking things out and and finding and, and wanting to play the game of I didn't like it yesterday, but I may like it a lot tomorrow. And then there's different parts of the plant, too, that that come out of that. Like, you, you go into a supermarket, and whatever you buy, herbs included, they're just one way, one part of the plant. Whereas, uh, you know, the more you get into the research about... The things that you're growing, and the more you just experience them, uh, growing them, there are all these different stages. There's there's the seed when it's just soaked and soft, so that you can actually eat it. There's this seed when it sprouts. There's a seed when that sprout turns into a little micro green or mini green or baby green or medium size or big size or flowering. Or uh, and then after the flower, and in some Many plants, uh, especially herbs, come the green seed. For example, in um, cilantro or sweet sicily or fennel, Um, all these things have a a stage where the seed just after the flower, which in the flowers are often... Absolutely delicious. The best part of many, many herbs. Uh, so that you get this little green seed, which is chewy and soft and delicious. seems to yeah. uh, concentrate the flavor.
0: Right. It's like an explosion. It's like it's, the whole plant concentrated yeah. <laughs> yeah, in one little. little seed. But a lot of in pe- a lot of people, to your point, a lot of people growers would consider that something that you don't do with them. If it flowers, yeah. it's gone too. You know, if it bolts. done Done. like you've, you've taken it too far it's not harvestable anymore or there's nothing more good that will come of that plant but by experimenting in all of the different phases you find some beautiful things that are worth attention um and worth you know thinking about and investigating like you're doing with so many of these new vegetables that you're like i don't like this now but maybe there's another way but it's really interesting like what you were saying about the chicory too was like that was just because you were eating the outermost leaf yes like you Take, or you weren't eating the right part of the stock or you didn't. And there's just so many different ways to interact with that plant and to just like write it off as like a, you know, it's like so many people yeah. do of like, you know, I don't like that or that's not. They're not willing to go that next step, I guess. And so like, you don't have an
1: opportunity sometimes. Like when you're growing it in the garden sure. and you're handling it at all stages, and you just get in the habit of just putting things in your mouth right. <laughs> that are in the garden, yeah. and you just try it, and and it's interesting how you can stretch your your taste too. Uh, for example, now I, I start eating the more and more outer leaves of those chicories, and except for perhaps the most tough, mm. really old leathery ones. I find that my tolerance and my enjoyment has increased for the more bitter parts of the plant, as right. well as, and then some of them don't have such tight heads. Um, there are loose-leaf chicories too, mm-hmm. which are which vary in their degree of of uh, bitterness. You know, you actually get to the point of. Of, of loving that bitterness, and yeah. and then combining it with other, looking for it, and yeah. combining it with other things, and yeah. so it's it's a constant, endless evolution and exploration.
0: And that's what's happening here, too. Con- like and you know, micro looking at a plant, but then also macro looking at the farm as a whole and how it's evolved over just starting with you and growing herbs and bringing them to the city on the weekends, you know, to to friends and growing it from there. Yeah, exploring. I love it.
1: And even in my own cooking in my kitchen, which is a constant, ongoing improvisation and experiment, I mean, I will use a recipe as a as a, a reference, but rarely do I ever actually follow a recipe. And and maybe in such things as pastry, it's more important, but in, in vegetables, it's pretty freewheeling. Right. <laughs> you can do anything. Yeah. We had a leek and potato soup that was left over in my refrigerator. It was good, but it was a little bland, so I... Chopped. I was out in the field with Nevin and we saw that this sorrel had begun to actually make leaves. And in one of my greenhouses, I had a sorrel plant where the leaves were a little bigger. So I went and got those and we chopped them up really, really fine and used them as a sprinkle on the uh, leek and potato soup, which just
0: changed the whole thing
1: totally, transformed it and made it just wonderful
0: it was very good
1: Because that little kick of oxalic acid which is what makes a sorrel taste so-called lemony is a number of very early emerging plants have oxalic acid that's something about it must make them either tolerant to the weather or resist hungry deer that might come around wanting to eat them. So sorrel is a plant that is the easiest imaginable thing to grow. If you start it from seed, it's foolproof. Almost everyone will germinate. It grows really well, really fast, uh, and put them in the field. They are totally perennial. They can withstand really cold weather. They will come back year after year, and eventually you will have to divide them because they just get overcrowded, which is easy to do just with a shovel, down the middle and then once you get it somewhat cut you can divide them with your hands into, you know, one clump of sorrel that's maybe two or three years old. You can divide into probably twenty yeah. different Little individual plants
0: that that season will grow into be
1: to be just as big as the parent one, and uh, but so they are one of the earliest earliest things up in the spring. So you get out there, you get those leaves. You can use them in sandwiches. Uh, one thing, a little caution about the oxalic acid. Some people that have certain kidney problems aren't supposed to have things with oxalic acid, but for most people, uh, it's fine. Anyway, the um, uh, so the sorrel is there in the early spring. You get two or three cuts off of it, and then it will start going to seed. And it makes a long stalk, and the stalk will produce flowers, and which are kind of, you you wouldn't think flower when you looked at it. It's it's an obtrusive little cluster of things, but then they eventually become seeds. But all the while, during that that part, while whatever is happening at the end of that stalk is going on, you can cut those stalks, which we used to just throw in the compost pile, because if you let the whole plant go to seed, it's not going to make you much more leaves in it. So you take that stalk, and you chop it up into maybe four-inch pieces, and you fill a pot with them. And if you have any kind of a large amount of sorrel, you're going to have infinite amounts of these stalks, which nobody wants to buy, because they're tough. But if you chop them up, you put them into into the pot you cover it with water you bring it to a simmer turn it off cover it let it sit overnight and in the morning miracle of miracles you will have pink lemonade uh it tastes very lemony and it is a beautiful pink rosy pink color and you can sweeten it to taste with whatever you want or not and depending how evolved your your taste for sour is at that point and um you uh just use it as a drink. I mean, just by itself. You can make it be an alcoholic drink. You can make it be a sorbet.
0: So what are some of the other unique and interesting things that you grow on the farm that maybe people aren't used to seeing or hearing about?
1: So Huacatay is one of my most recent discoveries. Uh, A couple of chefs had asked me do you have black Peruvian mint? I thought I knew all the real mints. I had never heard of black Peruvian mint. And uh, so I did a little research, and then it turned out that a neighbor was actually growing it and had a ton of extra seeds. Uh, It's Huacate in Peru, and it's uh, black Peruvian mint in the United States.
0: It looks like a bush. It grows like a... It's a marigold.
1: It is technically a marigold, uh, which... Um, has a little tiny, tiny flower, clusters of little tiny flowers that you wouldn't recognize as marigolds, but the the leaves mm-hmm. are definitely recognizable as that. And yeah, it grows really big. In Peru, they make a paste, like it's a pesto, like we would do a pesto with basil, and they would make a pesto out of out of that, and you can buy it online, little tubes of it. Burgarten, which has a bigger, rounder leafed sage, which uh, it lasts many, many years. You can cut it back in the spring, and you get new growth, and it's lovely. Also, has a nice flower, sage flowers. Few people know that, but they're really good. Other thing, French tarragon, of course. You can't grow from seed. You have to do from cuttings or divisions. Hardy uh, sweet marjoram, which is perennial, though not Totally hardy in our climate. We will dig it up, bring it inside a greenhouse in the winter, and then put it out again. But it doesn't have to be a heated greenhouse. It does fine in an unheated greenhouse. Then last of all, da-da-da, is African blue basil, which is something that we discovered, oh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, It was invented, it was discovered in an herb farm where There was an accidental cross between European purple basil, or sometimes called opal basil, and a wild East African basil, which didn't have a whole lot of flavor. Uh, But the two got together and somehow, by chance, managed to become what is now known as African blue basil. And I assume that all... That we buy is descended from that plant because you have to do it unless you are fortunate enough to have another chance crossing in your your garden you um, which would be very unusual uh, it it you have to do it from from cuttings and it is. A little hardier than regular basil, a very different flavor, but yeah. equally delicious yeah. in its own right. Although it takes a while to get used to it, and because you're thinking, "Oh, this is should be basil," but not, I think if its name weren't basil, just African blue uh, or blue leaf would be better. And the leaf is very beautiful, and the flower is even more beautiful. It has uh, it's kind of purpley pink and and uh, it's a spike, the flower that is, and like so many flowers, it's fabulous flavor. It's very susceptible to white flies in the greenhouse, so keeping it over the winter is tricky. But we manage. So more and more nurseries will will be carrying it now as it becomes kind of recognized as being so wonderful. But all those things you have to you have to propagate other ways than um, than from seed.
0: What's What's going on with the wood stove outside? Wood oven.
1: Oh, we have a pizza your, oven. Yeah.
0: What's your favorite? We were talking about cooking oh, yeah. here. Do you, do you fire it up in the summertime a lot and cook yeah, out of it?
1: Yeah. And the fun thing is, um, you have to have a lot of people to make it worth it. So you have to have a lot yeah. of parties, mm-hmm. which is okay.
0: Yeah. And, <laughs> parties are uh, great.
1: And you can even do it into cold weather because it's warm standing around it. We love to make pizzas. And put on them. It's almost a salad pizza. We have all these lovely greens, and it's, you know, people are just used to familiar toppings, mushroom, meat. But yeah. you can also put on wonderful greens with or without those other things. Uh, and I like to just put a whole lot of fresh, fresh herbs, herb and greens leaves, and just fold the thing over, and it becomes a sandwich, uh, yeah. kind of a foldover. We, we don't grow a lot of vegetables, but we do grow, uh, but one that we do grow every year, and we don't grow it. It grows <laughs> its area, and we harvest it, uh, and that is sunchokes, also called Jerusalem artichokes, also called Terrasol, a new name suggested by a wonderful farmer in Maine named Will Bonsall, who is also a wonderful author. You have the word terra for earth and sol for sun, because It is a perennial sunflower and a native of the New World, of the Americas. Uh, There are, I'm told, records of it as something that the Native Americans were eating in the 1600s when the first Europeans came, and they wrote about what was being eaten here, and now they're grown all over the world. They're very invasive. It's a tuber. It stays, it can survive in really, really cold ground in the winter. It can be in totally frozen ground as long as it's in the ground if it's lying on the surface it won't doesn't survive but uh, then it comes up in the spring and ours have just started making little sprouts and little roots and each one will grow into a very very tall the flower which opens in october is like it looks just like a tiny sunflower, which it is, and it turns toward the sun. Um, the, the Jerusalem of Jerusalem artichokes has nothing to do with the city. It's from Jerusalem, turned toward the sun. And the artichoke part, I guess some people think it tastes somewhat like an artichoke, which I guess you could say, but uh, that in which, and so you can eat the flower and you can eat the tuber. And the tuber, which grows, they radiate out like a potato from the, which is also a tuber, from the original tuber which made the, the plant is the delicious part, and you can we dig them fresh all winter long by just putting a tarp down over where they are if it's going to be very, very cold so that it doesn't freeze right under them. They have just a wonderful flavor, which you can become quite addicted to. It's really... And some people are not able to digest that effectively, so they have sometimes actually rather painful gash problems with them, but... So, if you have never had them before start start slow and just have a little bit well, you can also ferment them and For some people that I know that had were not able to comfortably digest them uh even cooked, found that after they were fermented just like you would do, and you can ferment them same way as sauerkraut, salted water and and uh they and it just takes a couple weeks and you have this perfectly fermented product and i you don't peel them just scrub them and uh have them fairly fresh so that the skin is tender and not crusty
0: eva thank you so much this was a great conversation thank you this whole experience to me is success
1: well, I really appreciate that you're that you're doing this that you're getting out on all these farms and fisher fishing boats and things like that um, years ago, a group of chefs came out here to visit, and they were amazed to see that potatoes grew in the ground. they somehow had thought they had no idea they just hadn't thought about how they grow, and that they I think they thought that they were fruits that somehow hung on things, blown away by the fact that they, you dig them up out of the ground.
0: I'd love to come back in the season, see or see stuff as it's coming. And once there's more life out in the fields, and I'd love to fire up the wood stove and bring some friends and we can have some chef friends come down and people can cook and we can hang out and good. have a beautiful night. Okay. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. So that is that. You can check Eva out on Instagram at the Notorious Eva. Thank you again, Eva. You can find me, Nevin, on Instagram at Nevin Taylor, Twitter at Namaste Nevin, and Facebook, uh, Nevin Taylor Cooks check out nevintaylorcooks.com for recipes and updates on everything that's going on with cooking up a podcast and all that stuff yeah thank you very much for listening and please share this with your friends share it everywhere if you like it give it the thumbs up or whatever it is you got to do with these things to make them all happen uh, and keep happening and get more people to listen so thank you very much and I'll check you next week